the positive way to look at that is to say, well, if that's the case, right, then I mean, architecture as a profession is something that was not made up. It was very much like if you look at formative period when the profession came together in the United States, I mean, George Johnston has written about this a lot in Assembling the Architect. There's also a lot of opportunity to rethink the way the profession is structured, right? It's not that we have been building buildings since actually they're for millennia. I am very committed to that. I'm very committed to people who have been doing that. But the profession of architecture is a very small blip on that timeline. So I think that, long story short, what has come out of a lot of this research is the kind of the feeling and the, the conviction that there are just lots of different potential ways to practice. Welcome to A Best Practice, a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, I am very excited to be joined by Jacob Rydell. Uh, Jacob is an assistant professor in practice at the Harvard's GSD, and he's also the director of customer success at SaltMine. He served as a director at WeWork on the infamous Power by We team, which we may dive into, and was a director of special projects at Ennead before that. He also happens to be a co-founder of the amazingly popular architecture magazine or publication or some book clog. In this chat, we're going to dive into hopefully a lot of these topics and more. Thank you so much for joining me, Jacob. Great to be here. So, I don't know, George, you want to just give a little quick intro for myself, and then we can dive into the discussion? Yeah, before we do, I don't want to miss out. Chris is also on the call, so it's going to be really cool because Chris has been instrumental in helping to, to serve some of the questions up from the community. And yeah, it's going to be a good kind of a tag team here. So yeah, let's start. Beautiful. Well, great to see everybody virtually. Hello from... Fort Greene in Brooklyn, where I've been for over a year now. I actually realized I celebrated recently my uh, 365th night, consecutive night, sleeping in the same bed, which was a personal best, something I've never done in my entire life and uh, never thought it would ever happen. Never know if it'll happen again, but I think figure we probably all had similar experiences like that. I'm not going to lecture today. I have lectures, I have a lot of stuff, but like this is really about a conversation. But just so just everyone knows, George, Chris, and Mike pulled in some images from time to time just to help illustrate points or so we can talk about it. So it won't be a smooth narrative slide by slide, but I did just want to kick off by giving just a little bit of some context of where I'm coming from, real brief. And I'll go back to when I came out of school. So I uh, graduated into the recession in 2008. It was a, a kind of wild time to be coming out into the field and coming out of architecture school at that time. There were really only a handful, broadly, there were still kind of stereotypical paths that were presented to us, right? One was this which is to see how it worked, the kind of er architect, the hero architect. That was one model for practice that we saw. Another model for practice or version of practice, I'd say, that was out there was really, you know, this one, right? The sniveling critic, you know, a familiar character from Ratatouille. And then finally, you know, there was kind of this third option that seemed to be presented to me, right? Which was uh, really to go an academic group, right? And these are obviously showing caricatures of these, but these were the three kind of key paths that were presented the time we were just floating around me in my context. And to be honest, like I just didn't want to choose, I was interested in all and didn't want to pick any one of them. So long story short, you know, if you look at my career, I know that it's on my CV, wherever you may see it, like this is what it has amounted to over the last 10 plus years. And it is represents really my deliberate best attempt to basically not choose any one of those paths, right? So you can see, won't read this off to you, but this is a steady progression from traditional design practice into you know to a different type of design practice to then starting to do research publications, which is something I'd always had one foot in to then we work. And then now where I am currently at Saltline, really taking and even say another kind of further lap upstream, really starting to get involved with the design of the tools themselves that designers use. So connecting all of this is really a very deep interest I have in really the design of practice itself, which is where I think the title of the announcement for this this fireside chat probably came from, I suspect, at least from that that interest, which I've said in the past uh, before. So uh, with that, George, that's just a very quick intro of where I am. I think that maybe just open up to the discussion. I can pull in sections as we want and leave it at that. Yeah, I think I get to kind of start a little bit back in about the work on Clog, just because I feel like the work in each publication, which is, you could explain a little bit more, but it's like, it seems like every issue picks up on a very specific theme. You then collect a lot of writings from a lot of people that are very brief essays in some way. But what's also fascinating about the publication is the amount of effort that goes into the research side of it, which I think there's just a lot of interesting insights you've been able to pull out throughout the years on this kind of research, which doesn't really exist anywhere else in that format. So I was hoping maybe you can kind of walk us through, because I think 
the journey of this conversation will get us hopefully to understanding how to design a firm today. But mm-hmm. I think it's helpful to understand where things are at to kind of unpack a little bit of the history of where, where we are through that kind of research that you've been doing to help us understand where we could be. Yeah. So you want me to give a little bit of uh, explanation of clog? Is that? Well, I think like, no, it's, yeah. I think it'd be more interesting to talk about like some of the interesting insights you've pulled out from clog, I see. you know, because I, I think the research side of that, of each of those prompts, like for instance, in the book on brutalism, you talk about concrete, right. And the impact that concrete. So this is kind of like a, a more, structural element of your research, which leads to like questions about why was that style so prominent in the time and place it was. Um, So I don't know. I think those examples would be pretty interesting to go over. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I don't know how familiar even everyone is with Clog. It's very kind of you to say it's such a, you know, famous, you know. I mean, it's sold out. I would imagine that people. (laughs) But it is still print only. I mean, basically, as folks might know clog when we started that uh, my my collaborators back a number of years ago now or 10 years ago was essentially a response to or a reaction to art daily like where we saw architectural discourse really going it was moving online and then here i'll just pull it up while i've got it here why not i'll give you a very quick intro you can see this mm-hmm. yeah okay cool so i'm just going to kind of run you through this quick so basically the idea with clog is you were going from a point where you'd get this endless kind of you know, architecture du jour, has a thousand projects published a day, right? The idea with Clog was to literally slow things down, right? To focus a single page. This was our original mission statement that we wrote, like focus on a single subject from multiple viewpoints and to literally do it on paper, right? That was our movement to print is that we felt that there was something about being in print that just give you a, would take you away from the screen. And that was the idea. You know, the idea was having multiple viewpoints coming from a single place. We structure was open submissions, targeted submissions and original research. And you know, we weren't affiliated with the university. We were a nonprofit. We really felt like this was something that should be, if we're going to do it, it should make money and should be able to support itself. And I will just cut ahead a little bit here. And so basically, this was the first issue we did was about big. And we paid first issue with our credit cards. This one all arrived. And co-founders of Hartman, Kyle May and Julie Vandenhout, they, all the pieces they arrived were like, what are we going to do with this? We have to sell it. And this is kind of us in one of our early meetings. Essentially, though, it did, you know, we were able to sell it. We hustled. And for that, it supported itself. So for us, it was, you know, George, I guess going back a second, like this was for us, Clog was very much, we were entrepreneurs and starting it, right? And that, that was, we really felt that if it, it was important to us that it was for profit, because we thought if we we're going to do something that's worthwhile, it should be able to support itself in the market, right? Now, to your question about, I guess, the learnings from it, I, I don't know, it's hard to answer that, because like, as Clog, this is just between up until 2016, when we were focusing purely on architecture subjects. You can see the different titles we were looking at then, or subjects we were looking at, everything from World Trade Center to the original one, to the Guggenheim, to prisons, brutalism, I won't read it all to you. But yeah, I think each issue for us is an opportunity to just do a deep dive in a subject where we've got to learn a ton about it as well. So I guess you're referring to the brutalism issue. I think I might have actually that. I might have a sample of that there. I guess you're talking about probably architecture, the concrete. But in any event, there is a, oh yeah, so we would, we would do, in each issue, we have research pieces. And you know, this, is one, this is one from the brutalism issue that's looking at the economics of concrete, where really we're asking the question, why don't we see brutalism today in concrete? We were actually just looking at the price of concrete in the 60s. It was very affordable. So I think that that's what you're asking about there. Another one, this is a great piece from Eric Herman, the brutalism issue, where we were looking at, you know, why are architects so in love with brutalism? Well, he actually did this great study showing so many of the kind of the nurseries of architects, all these architecture schools were, no surprise, brutalist buildings. This was a beautiful drawing Eric did back then for the brutalism issue. So don't know if it answers your question, but I was just uh, giving you, you know, just to go into clog. But yeah, I mean, I think yeah. that in part, I just think that what's kind of interesting about your career is how you've sort of transitioned from deep within it and using research as a vehicle to like explore it more deeply, all the way to like diving really deeply into practice itself, right? With off with the Office OS exhibition and all the kind of content that was produced around that in order to sort of escape it, right? It's kind of like this, you dove so deep that you kind of crossed the black hole into another dimension, so to speak, to bring you to a whole, you know, like the the world of WeWork and, and whatnot. But I guess what I'm very curious about, like what are the things that you've picked up along the way from that research that were kind of revelatory for you? Because I think not many people probably have done that deep dive as much as you have. 
in terms of like what the current state of practice and its evolution over time. And so I'm, I'm just curious, like what from all the different avenues of research that you've been working on, what have been the most interesting insights that can maybe explain today? Okay. I'm just going to share something just so there's something on screen while I'm talking. So it's not here. Can you see this? Yeah. Great. Well, I guess part of this depends too, and I don't know how familiar the audience is with the Office US project. This was something that I was involved with with a number of a really fantastic team. We were curating the US Pavilion in Venice in 2014. And the Office US manual, which we did, was really looking at the evolution of the Office manual. The idea that it was really this, and George, I suspect this is what you're referring to, is that this was really, you know, the premise almost absurdly was that, you know, could we look at the office manual as the kind of unpublished manifesto uh, or unspoken priorities of practice? So we sought out as many office manuals as we could find from the last hundred years, going back to the community white before up until today, really parsed them and ultimately produced this book which was each spread was basically one side would be excerpts from office manuals by decade around a specific subject. And then we'd have commission pieces from contemporary architects, thinkers, writers, critics around that subject. This is just the spread about office hours, for example. Also, we're looking at the evolution of tools, evolution of architecture office floor plans. There's evolution of architecture off organization hierarchies and much more. So just to give the audience some context of that project, I'm not going to go into it in great detail. So to answer your question, George, I guess, which is what have I learned from this or we got to today, I'd say it's, I'll be honest, I think that one of the things that came out of, for me, out of the architecture office or the office US manual was the kind of the discovery that of how little actually has changed. I think that's, this is a long way to answer. I know we're saying some context and kind of finding our rhythm in the discussion here, but that, you know, you could see how so many of the same issues architects discuss today in professional literature, even in our, both in our manuals, but also just in the architectural press were the same issues a hundred years ago. And I think that you can trace that. Obviously there are changes in tone and style and detail, but the underlying structural issues of the profession architects talk about, you know, getting paid, having control, long hours, the things that I could rattle off the list, we all know it, right? But that's been really a fact of the profession for really since it's been a profession, right? So you keep in mind, you know, the first licensing law was only, you know, it was 1897 in you know Illinois. So this is really as a profession is relatively young. And I think projects like the manual have shown to me that how little has changed and in certain key ways. There's different ways you could look at that, right? I think the positive way to look at that is to say, well, if that's the case, right, then I mean, architecture as a profession is something that was not made up. It was very much like if you look at formative period when the profession came together in the United States, I think George Johnston has written about this a lot in Simulating the Architect. There's also a lot of opportunity to rethink the way the profession is structured, right? It's not that we have been building buildings since actually there for millennia, I am very committed to that. I'm very committed to people have been doing that. But the profession of architecture is a very small blip on that timeline. So I think that, long story short, what has come out of a lot of this research is the kind of the feeling and the, the conviction that there are just lots of different potential ways to practice. In the manual itself, I think one of the kind of interesting, the tone at which people write their office manuals is interesting. Some people write it in a very like, you could see the evolution of it being very sort of playful or just almost like, written in a very natural tone or like, oh, you know, you can't really stay late or whatever. Obviously in that, let's say in, in the dialect of the time or whatever, right? In the kind of how they used to speak. But fast forward, I mean, you just see the evolution of it becoming much more corporatized, right? Where the language is just way more boilerplate in general. I think, yeah, that kind of speaks to obviously the corporatization of the firm in general. But I feel like what you start to see too in the responses is just kind of like a diff- a push against some of that or try- in some instances trying to go back. I think like the work of Moss in New York is kind of an interesting one. Like the responses by, I think Michael Meredith wrote a piece on there. I forgot what topic it was, but I don't know. I think there's the way in which people are trying to practice now is trying to push against those the historical baggage of the industry in some sense. What I'm also curious to know maybe more about from your experience is like, at what point did you kind of make the conscious decision that after all this kind of the deep dives that you had done in academia or whatever led you to going to a place like we work in general? Yeah, it's funny. I'm trying to think of how personal to go. Well, yeah, let's just talk. So if we were to sketch out 
my own experience in my career, I guess, because I went there by showing the, those early slides of showing where I've worked, right? That my first experience was at Rex, right? Which was the OMA, essentially operating in the OMA model, which is which is very clear to me. And I learned that that's, it's a certain way of working that's designed, right? It's a design methodology. It's very much, you have the most junior people producing the ideas many in many ways, right? And there's lots of firms that operate this way. It's kind of one of the great things that came out of OMA. And you have a smaller group of people who are kind of editing those ideas, but basically the generation of ideas is bottom up, right? And what comes with that is it's a designed way of working, right? And that produces a very particular type of work. There's a type of work it can produce and there's types of work that just it will not yield. And it is predicated on also, there's an inherent inefficiency to that model. Most junior people producing a lot of the ideas. So inherently the result is you work kind of far more, far more time, far, far much greater amount of time but if, because you know that like maybe nine, I'm exaggerating, but like nine out of 10 ideas aren't going to have legs, right? But if one of those is genuinely new, kind of it validates that in, within that context, it validates that way of working. So I knew that model. And then I made a choice to go to another very good practice, Polshek, any ad, just changed the name, which kind of worked at the time and it's, it's changed, it's, it has evolved, but it's worked in a way that's kind of a more traditional design process at that time. This is a while back where, you know, design ideas were created by a smaller, more experienced group and then kind of, which was inherently more efficient, right? And then bring them further resolved by the less experienced people. And again, that's just a different designed way of working. And I kind of got to understand those. They can both produce great work. It's very different types of work. And it was really my transition to when I was getting involved with the Office US project, looking at the evolution of the architecture office, both physically and as an organization, that my interest in this, the design of practice really started to evolve. And then that's when ultimately that's kind of an opportunity came to move to go to WeWork, where there really, as you know, with Powered by We, even before that, like WeWork really was creating a different potential practice model that was fully integrated, right? One of the closest things I saw at that time to, this is like 2017, 2018, to really like really a full stack model where you had design, delivery, and operations. I think crucially bringing those three together was an opportunity to really think of a very different way of working. And so my interest to answer your question going to WeWork was the opportunity to really engage on the ground in testing out different ways of working, different ways of architects working relative to the other consultants and or the other partners in design and also crucially being involved in the operations of space because I think ultimately, you know, where the real potential is is closing the feedback loop and being able to create structures where we can truly learn from the performance of spaces and really see how connect design to outcomes. And you led a very interesting team there that was very different. It wasn't like the project team specifically working on, on the actual design of the spaces can you unpack that a little bit of like, what was the kind of nature of the team that you worked in? Because I think there's something about that too, that's just really interesting. And it can point to potentially changes in which, in how, going back to the org structure of the stuff that you looked at before in Office US, like how the role that you were part of redesigned the org in a sense. It just made it different, but it was, it, just explain, because I think it's helpful to hear for everybody. Yeah, sure. Well, they originally came over to WeWork to do was, Georgina, I don't, I don't, I'll just, for people who don't know. So at the time when I went to WeWork, this is in 2018, I was already, the amazing team had already built up basically like the organization. But what was happening in that particular moment in time is when WeWork was really, the enterprise business was really taking off, right? And there was this in particular powered by We was getting off the ground where WeWork was not just designing for customers who are coming into WeWork spaces, but designing, building, and in some cases operating spaces for enterprise customers in their own space, right? And when that shift happened, WeWork was, you know, was, had essentially what in the traditional practice world would be called clients. And WeWork had built a very, very robust, strong, credible in-house design team that built a really, that could design deliver spaces really well. It had also built an incredible sales organization, which is mostly drawing from software sales for its kind of organizational and practice model. And what it lacked at the time was really a group to bridge the gap between those two. And when I try to explain what that gap was, if I say to like, to architects, what was missing was essentially what was missing was in our traditional practice, some combination of partners, principles, and, you know, some associates like would, you know, the business development group and architecture practice, what they would do. If I talk to people in software, I'll say what basically we were needed was, you know, technical sales or sales engineering. Right. It was people who were subject matter experts who could also bring in work, you know, put in a simpler way. So I went over to WeWork essentially to begin building up a team like that. Doug Chambers hired me there. And that eventually that team grew. 
and uh, eventually became client solutions. You pick two words that no one could argue with, you know, clients and solutions. We had to spend a while trying to figure out what the name would be. And then we had a separate group that was then that was basically dealing with the kind of client relationship. Once we closed the deals that become PMO or program management, eventually those merged into one group called enterprise services. that was like end to end. But long story short, it was a group that was really specifically bridging the gap between design delivery and sales. That and makes from, sense. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting, I'm trying not to. No, not I think to, that, that, that's good because I think that level of detail is actually really appropriate. Like one of the things that I think was, I'd be curious your take on is essentially like, what were the problems that you were helping to solve essentially? Because I think like, if you look at traditional architecture practice, you have the business development function. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times the way it's set up is not necessarily from, they wouldn't consider themselves sales in the traditional sense, but essentially that is what the function is geared to do is to help to bring in work along with how you're saying the partners roping in partners to help to bridge a potential client over to a signed contract. But I think that the way in which it was structured seemed from, at least for me, for context, I was in a different department in general, but I knew Jacob and I know other people in the team. Just the whole idea of cadences were different. Like the idea of like how you have targeted accounts could be seen as different in some cases. The ways in which you were brought in to solve issues from your team's expertise side felt very different than what happened in a normal traditional office. And I'm curious, like how much of that has to do with the fact that like, I mean, I'm curious, like were there are such things as RFPs that were being, that the team was applying to versus like deals were being structured, all that, like the kind of uh, what we'd call top of funnel, like how mm-hmm. the companies actually came into and then were converted into signed contracts. That whole part is, can be, I think it's the way it's done today or in traditional practice is not the way that which your team was doing it. Yes. So uh, to answer your first, yes, there definitely were RFPs that were being chased and developed. I think that in many cases, we were doing our best to see if there were ways to engage in work without going through those traditional processes. And it was challenging. I think we had some successes and some that weren't, or some failures as well, but that's how you learn. But yeah, I think the... Is, is the question, what's the question? Are you asking, like, how were we working differently? Like, yeah, I, th- I think it has to do with, like, how were you working differently? Because I think even, like, you're saying the successes and failures, your strive to try to go around the RFP process, those things yeah. are actually, if someone tried to present that necessarily within an architecture practice, just coming off the street or just, like, as a new employee, mm-hmm. that culturally might not be seen as something, like, that the company wants to engage in. There's something about also the culture of iteration, right? That you could probably yeah. learn from your mistakes and then use that to be much more agile in solving that issue. I think that I'd be curious to hear more about like just the cultural differences that you felt from that organization as a team versus traditional model. Sure, sure. Okay. I think that's one of the things that I think was and remains one of the really special things about WeWork. And this one I'm I don't want to make this a not here to, to kind of promote we were, but I do think there's some incredible what was done there and is that really brought together a group of people who normally wouldn't be under together under one roof together, or on one roof working at the same time, right? You had our, you know, everything within even just power by we had architects, designers, architects and interior designers working together, you know, which is authors sometimes that is, is difficult in its own right. And you know, cost estimators and you know, everything within the building, like AC industry, you had under one but also, crucially, you had community teams that we work, which were essential. That really were those were the eyes and ears of the the teams, and that is, that was the very critical to the feedback loop and figuring out if how designs performed. But also uh, the sales organization, we had sales true salespeople, right? And all this is to say that I think one of the things I really took away from that experience was it's the first time in my professional experience since I left architecture school, where you where I was not operating in an environment where at the end of the day, there was like this kind of agreement on what the like prize was, which was the previous to WeWork. Like in the end of the day, it, you know, there was a, you could never, and most firms are like this, right? It's that ultimately design is king, right? And that anything that is not that is seen as support or tends to be, a, this, this right. is a gross generalization, but yeah. I'm just saying that culturally within architecture, there's still the sense that there is design and there's support, right? And I think part of that goes back to just how architects are trained. You know, the studio remains core to the kind of architectural school experience. 
And today, I mean, I'm not here at the moment to like critique that model. I think that there are valid critiques of it and also other models for how it can be structured. But I think that for me, WeWork was the first time being truly within a context where there was not like one particular skill set that kind of was seen as the thing that was prized above all else. And at first, it was a little destabilizing because right? I was like, oh, wait, there's, but then it became because I'd meet people, you know, in the sales order, for example, who were not good at design, had no interest in design, and totally didn't have any thing about that, right? That was like totally cool, <laughs> you know? And they're like, oh, you're good at design. And they're like, that's what they would say to something. You know? And then they're like, well, I'm really good at, you know, developing business relationships, the client relationships. And there was not necessarily, there wasn't this like common thing that everyone was kind of measuring themselves against in that way. And that was so people could just be really, good at what they were good at. And that was totally cool. Right. And I think that was really powerful. And that was that changed my perspective. And this is like, again, I'm just talking very openly here, but it was the first time I've been in that type of environment. And it shifted my thinking around that. So I really got how words like even came in even to vocabulary, right? Like initially I went to WeWork, I was still clinging to the word client. Like I'd be in meetings with people in the sales org, I'd be talking, be referring to them as clients, see people in the sales, the my colleagues in the, in the true sales org be referring to customers. And customers, every time I heard it, it would be kind of like, aha, you know, there'd be this over time I really kind of came around to not just be okay using it, but actually fundamentally understand there's a fundamental difference between a client and a customer. And a customer use of the term customer implies a certain level of service, certain attention to their use and their experience which client doesn't have. And I think that that was really powerful. It shifted my thinking. I think it's no longer a dirty word, right? I think a lot of fixed thing customer is a dirty word. I don't think so anymore. So that's like, I think that that was really valuable for me. We were kind of valuable for a lot of people. It was like being in a context where people just were given the space to be good at what they were good at. And I think it'd be very, for architects, for firms to kind of, and there's definitely firms that do do this, but I think that it's, as a profession, we could, more work to do to acknowledge that there are lots of ways contributing in, in a very meaningful way to the production of space, of uh, a space that supports positive experience and supports life. And it's not just design. Design in the way that we're trained, you know, from our schooling that really ultimately that carries the day. Jacob, so when you were working at WeWork and was opening up this world of scope and operations, so monitoring the ongoing success of space, and now you're at Salt Mine, were something similar, and especially in a role that was once called support and is now has a new, like a transformational paradigm mm-hmm. shift where the idea is now success, customer success. And it gets closer to business. It'd be interesting to hear a little bit about that. I'm thinking that you mentioned at first, like Rex being a bottoms up design model where design is starting at the bottom and is the priority. But in an operational organization, I almost feel, correct me if I'm wrong, but is analyst actually perhaps like one of the entry level functions? I guess I want to kind of find if there's a connection between what happens in architecture normally is that there is a research, but it only happens academically. But it's fascinating that it seems like you've taken academic research and found an opportunity to enter the more common business vocabulary about research, which is an analyst, right? But then reapply it back to architecture. Is there something there with what I'm saying? But this entry level in the operational side, looking at architecture that is actually coming like the baseline of that is research. And you might call it analyst. Hmm. Interesting. So are you proposing that instead of the, well, you're proposing a different entry level position for say an architecture graduate in a firm, or are you proposing this totally different way of or a different category of persona in a firm altogether? Yeah, I guess I'm sort of wondering if Instead of thinking that it's like a huge difference or a huge like paradigm shift in any mm-hmm. other world, it seems like because like say you're an entry level person in business, it's likely that you're an analyst, which is a sort of research role. Yeah. But it's an opportunity to actually apply research thinking, which in architecture seems only possible academically. Yeah, I just would like to hear mm-hmm. a little bit about what is the work that's involved in the success side of where your scope is operations, like what happened at WeWork and also what you do now at SaltMine. And yeah. this idea that the foundational skill set is research versus design. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Understood. I would say to answer the, the research question, I think that there we should give ourselves more credit. Like I think a lot of architects, a lot of practices are a lot of practices will say they're research-based. I think actually a lot, I think whether all are is every day, but I think a lot of architects do incorporate research as part of their work, right? The way they weigh it out, not dissimilar from how an analyst in the entry level business position referring to would. I think that 
the ways that because even the business world, there's seldom, you know, it's not always those entry level positions aren't like fundamental pure research where someone is just going off and looking at you know, studying or running experiments or in the library or you know, not goes to the library. But I think that a lot of practices are the first, the early stages of a design project are fundamentally research, or there's definitely research elements to it. There's exploration, there's study, there's testing. I think that the challenge may be a structural challenge now, right now, totally redefining that the traditional trajectory of, you know, exiting school, entering a practice as a junior designer, working at those stages, the working, working towards licensure, perhaps, is that there is an enormous amount of just experience and knowledge that's be gained through doing, right? And that goes back to kind of architectures, the history of the discipline, that it's so much of it, you know, so much of what architects do is not taught in schools. And the only way one learns that is through practice. And as a result, the early stages of one's career is not so dissimilar from an apprenticeship in certain ways, right? Where that model, older model. So would one be able to supplant totally, like supplant that with an experience, like you go in and become a researcher at entry level as opposed to being like doing the things that a junior designer does. I don't know if you'd necessarily that set you up to become a practicing architect, right? Now, are there models of practice where you have truly do have true researchers who aren't on that, you know, who don't see themselves as on that roadway or path towards becoming a licensed architect and practicing architect in a more rounded sense? Yeah. And I think you see practices that have strategy groups, that are research groups that work in parallel with the designers. And I think that that's a very, can be very powerful and very interesting. I don't know, am I answering your question or maybe we'll give me another pass at that? Yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting. It would also be interesting to hear about the customer success function. Ah, I see. Um, and then, yeah. and how that is sort of like uh, if you describe the three components to WeWork as being design, delivery, and operations. Usually, when architects think about expanding the scope of architecture, they move into construction, they move into development. But mm-hmm. still, in that framing, it's still only design delivery. It doesn't also include operations. So that third, the even wider horizon is what we work. Seems like one of the only places that actually went that far. Now with Saltmine, which is also operations side of this, but making sure that it succeeds, which is the role of customer success. I'd like uh, to hear a little bit about that function and how it's sort of like a little microcosm of yeah. this additional scope that was attached to architecture through WeWork. Sure, sure. Okay, I got it. So maybe, how are we doing for time? We got like, on the last 15 for questions. I'll say very quickly, since I think probably most people have no idea what Saltmine is, right? Is <laughs> that it's a, you know it's a just a level set, so a software platform, where it's a platform that basically has two main essentially it's got two main customers, right? You have it's it basically for owners and occupiers, you know, or the kind of client side, we'd say, you know, Saltmine is managed. It's a platform web based that manages all of the spatial information that a you know a large company or any portfolio you know manager organization would have, right? So everything from like floor plans, seating charts, space standards, furniture catalogs, playbooks, all that stuff gets loaded into Saltmine, is available. You can organize it, you can find it, you can parse it, you can learn from it all in one place. Think of it as like with Salesforce, it's a CRM, like Saltmine is towards, you know, the real estate. Then we also have at Saltmine is is the second module, which is basically a BIM light that's optimized for interior design that plugs directly into that backend of data. So it allows then Again, in a web platform, uh, basically through the Chrome browser, it allows a designer to be designing in a 3D environment, plugged directly into all the spatial information that is captured and basically organized in the kind of owner-occupier like strategy module of Saltmine. So essentially, connects up the dots between all the data and all of the actual design tool itself. So ultimately, what the goal is really there is to create essentially, a, I'd say like a little like workplace lifecycle management platform. Right. So everything from programming, strategy for design, for then capturing the existing conditions, and then you start the cycle over again. So now that I've just kind of level set a little bit into your question, Chris, specifically like what the role of is in customer success in a software company. I mean, I think it's an interesting role that is really focused around making sure that users understand what the thing can do. And more and equally importantly, that the company that like Saltmine or any any customer support, you know, the engineering team understands what users need it to do. So again, it's a translation point. And I find those places similar to WeWork. I think of now finding myself in those translation points I think is very interesting because for me it also I like I think it's incredibly valuable to be able to talk to everyone. And that roles like customer success give one an excuse to talk to everyone, right? On both sides. 
And what I'm focusing specifically on in SaltMine is really actually our design industry partnerships. So I'm focusing specifically on the designers who um, we're working with who will use SaltMine to design spaces. How might a firm, as they're designing themselves from scratch starting today or starting next year, they started last year and they're still designing really hard, should they consider a customer success function, Mm. a homegrown version, a small version of this in their architecture firm? How might just thinking on the fly, like would be some principles that you could apply? Yeah, it's funny you ask that. I've been thinking about that more and also, frankly, going back to George's questions about WeWork and what essentially, you know, the client solutions was essentially a technical sales team. And again, I know, forgive me, architects, I'm now using terms that really apply to software or SaaS sales, but or the SaaS world. But I think that I'm very interested in the potential to bring some, infuse some, learn for some of those roles into an architecture practice context. I don't, honestly, I'm, I'm Chris, I'm like, I don't know the answer yet. I think there's potential there. I think that right now, in many, many practices, the partner principle, like that model is still like the kind of primary business, like that, that is the primary client relationship. That's when maintaining the relationship over a long period of time. Or, you know, or senior project, you know, there's various levels this happens in a firm, but that's happening in a professional who is also a subject matter expert, right? Meaning they are an architect, they know what they're talking about, maintaining those client relationships over time. And, you know, some firm, many firms have dedicated marketing teams, but the client base, you know, expects at the end of the day, to be sitting across the table from experience, you know, the person whose their name's not on the firm, like they are like seen as a leader of that practice, right? A leader within that practice. I think that that's, there's limits to how much you can scale that, which is why we were, we created something like Find Solutions. We were looking to see how could you create a model that can bring subject matter experts to the table who can also manage client relationships, but that you can scale, right? And the partner principal model can't scale to the point that, to the degree that we are scaling WeWork. So ask you that question, I think that there is room. I don't know the answer is yet, but I'm very interested to see if there's a room, room within architectural practice to have something like a sales engineer. The question then, and the challenge to get over is like, how do you position that person so that, and how do you like create an organization within the firm that's seen externally as, or seen internally as really true parts of the team, right? Not just seen as, again, as just like support to the core functions and also bringing clients to trust that group as representative of the practice is also something that would have to be solved. And for customer success, like that, I think is, I haven't thought of that. How do you bring that into a firm? I mean, I guess that's what, you know, obviously customer success is about really maintaining relationships, making sure that once you've already kind of established a relationship, you kind of, in the case of software, like you've signed a deal, right? That they remain a customer. They don't prevent churn, but you also make sure that they're always having a great experience with the platform that is doing what it needs, what you need them to do. It implies like a long-term relationship with the customer, with the client, which, you know, many examples of architecture, like you do a project, the customer or the client is off, they've gone away and like your relationship kind of ends except when you're kind of trying to get work out of them. So I think that that is obviously for longer-term relationships, you have account leads you know, who are basically operating in some ways in that customer success function. I think that you have people doing that in firms. I think that where I've seen some, this is like a bit of a divergence, but where I've seen some interesting work happening that I'm very curious about, would be curious to see more of this, is firms actually experiment with things like NPS and promoter scores which I don't know if you're familiar with that, but you know, it's an industry center basically yep. measuring customer satisfaction and tying that directly to company goals, right? And there actually are examples of architecture firms that have started to test this where you actually, and I think that's really interesting. I'm going to see some things like that where like where you could actually take, and again, in many, many industries, this is already totally normal. In architecture, we haven't really seen this, but let's say you know, where you take, I'd be curious to test out like, you know, you have a, your firm, could you tie like your bonuses and performance of your team members, right, within a within a project team, to an MPS score of that client, right? Like, what if you actually did, you know, run real MPS scores, track it, set goals, and with your clients, and based on you know your performance, that factors into a bonus structure or a compensation structure for your employees within an architecture firm context, right? Then you start to really see a connection, I think, between the user experience. <laughs> Right, the experience of both, and actually, then the upside for the design team. And I more and more am interested in models like that because I think that one thing that across the board, there's a sense of when you talk to many practitioners, especially the kind of earlier stages of their career, is that you know there's an enormous amount of work and the connection between their compensation, their value within the practice, and the actual output is tenuous. Right, other than simply just like getting the job done. 
right? Or the return, you know, producing the set, but like the actual customer satisfaction aspect or client satisfaction, like gets it, I think that should be tied to the team and looking for ways to do that. I think you know, some experimenting things like NPS might be a way to do that. That's a whole other conversation we could go down. I know we don't have time for that now, but yeah, that gets to the conversation around data too. But I think the, I completely agree about this, uh, how architecture firms should probably explore NPS. Uh, primarily because so much of the work that's brought in is through word of mouth or through yeah. repeat work, right? So by having a metric that you can focus on, which is very simple, most of the times it's just one question that yep. says like, how likely would you be to recommend this firm to someone else? And that scale will then give you a result that you can then use and track on a client by client basis, project by client basis to understand, okay, how are we doing? Okay, so yeah, we have uh, Marjan here has actually put a comment saying that's been used in the AE industry. The SMPS has published articles on it. That's great. Okay, so I think we'll open up to some questions and then, yeah, we can see. Okay, we have a couple. Okay, so question. Historically, arc design firms have been focused on portfolio and craft rather than strategy and sales. There are a few that have a true sales organization. Sales is not the same as BD. Are you seeing emergent design firms that are reframing their core business model to focus on service offerings as products with a sales function to build their business? It's a great question. I am looking for models that are doing and I and you may Martin, you may know of some. I, with the exception of like the ones that you probably all know that are operating kind of have one foot in kind of the tech world and one foot in AC industry where they many of them do have true sales orgs. I haven't seen like a traditional architecture firm that has a sales org the way you're describing it here. Though, again, if you know any, I would love to know because it's, it's something I'm, in, I'm very curious about. So I'm curious, what do you see amongst your students and what kind of practices they start to want to design when they're working, say, in your frameworks of practice class? Yeah, I think you'll see this problem. I mean, I see among my students and students in general that there is, a, I think, a generational shift in an interest in expanded notions of what it means to practice. Um, and that's an overused term probably, but people are very interested in making buildings, designing, but like not necessarily following the traditional model of going out of school, working for a small handful of kind of practices that we all know, working their way up and five years later, starting their own firm and getting shortlisted for PS1. Like we know that whole like that trajectory. I think that students are very interested in other ways of practicing that are much more multidisciplinary and blur the boundaries between architecture, product design. Those are the obvious ones. So I think that it's could go on further, but I think it's students are very are looking for other ways of practice than the traditional model that we have been presenting to them for quite some time now. I think that there's also a greater interest, which I really encourage in also in frankly in learning you know skills and tools that one traditionally maybe taught in business schools. Like I think that they're, you know, our I Tell students, you know, there's things they really focus on in school to learn as well, like things like even public speaking and negotiating. Like these are all things that I think traditionally in a lot of architecture programs, it's kind of assumed that you just absorb these or somehow you just kind of pick up those skills through osmosis or your it's inborn. And I think that those things are entirely teachable. And I think that actually professional schools should be teaching things like that because ultimately that makes that makes you that much more effective in the context of a practice. Thanks for that. I have one more question and then we will have a couple more questions, but we're tight on time. Maybe just really quickly, I'm just super interested in how the use of data in your experiences at Solve My now in these, like, let's say, non-traditional types of spatial practices. What have you taken away from that of how things were organized around data, how data was leveraged to make decisions versus your experiences prior to that? Well, I think that it is, how is that? I mean, I think that every, it's, it's the holy grail now, right? Like everyone is trying to figure out how to truly leverage data to design building spaces, anything, right? That ultimately performs better and makes it results in, you know, measurably positive outcomes. I think that we all know this, right? That it's one of the challenges when it comes to for traditional practice models is that if you aren't don't somehow have a way of being really, if you don't have any your hands in the end result in an, in an extended period, it can be difficult to generate, to actually get findings from what works and what doesn't. If you know you design a space, it's out there in the world and you don't get to talk to it again. 
So I think that WeWork is an example that was able to actually study the performance of its spaces and change it sometimes in real time. I think that George and a lot of people know there was there were elements of that that were truly there are are still truly like quantifiable through automated means. And then a lot of it that is really coming through the community teams. So it's very much relying on humans, but that's an incredibly effective way of figuring out you know what works and what doesn't. Are people actually using that confidence room the way it was intended? And are we working on this feedback loop because the community teams that can actually feed learnings back to the design team, you can kind of modify the design approach as a result. I think with salt mine, my interest with that is, you know, could we, are there ways we can start to do that with new technology, right? And I think there's a number of, of other of other um, groups that are looking, exploring that. So I think that that is where there is real potential as well, is can we start using technology that, you know, are, <laughs> it's kind of an obvious thing to say, right? But like, you know, how can we use, you know, pl- like software essentially and other tech to basically quantify and measure the performance of space long after the architect is not, day-to-day involvement in a relationship. Now, convincing clients to be interested in that as well, their customers, is that's the work at hand right now. Yeah, I think that this definitely the challenge, especially when we're talking about external, like trying to understand the output of a team or organization. I'm also curious, because you know, at Monograph, we use data to guide our way in terms of the goals that we have, even internally and in, uh, across operations. So whether it's on the marketing team, we use you know metrics to drive our, like how we qualify success is driven through specific KPIs that we're constantly tracking. And it's part of a, a cadence even for us to understand how we're improving in the work that we do tactically mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis, which is what I think is from the conversations we've had, I've, I've had like with different um, firms, it's like that piece is a bit missing, right? It's some, like, whether it's because of poor instrumentation or even just the idea of MPS, which Marjan has mentioned, like, is starting to be talked about and SMPS has been speaking about. I, I still think that there's a lot of opportunity on that front of like using data to improve just operations itself within the business, which I think is something that like, I mean, you know, these, these other non-traditional companies do leverage for decision-making. Cool. The last question we have is a special one. I'm just, just very curious to know what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you. What's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for me in my life? Yes. Wow. That is a... Give me a beat to think about an answer to that. I mean, it's intentionally meant to throw you off <laughs> because yeah, no, good, we, we like to bring it back to like uh, more people centric, right? Just bring it back to we're all human. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I'm going to give like a, a whining answer. It's, it won't be a non answer. I'm just like, I'm just going to talk through it. <laughs> give you yeah, like, yeah. My mind. like, I'm trying to figure out how to give you an answer that's not like a stock, you know, feels like very stock and appropriate for this, right? Because like the first thing you came to mind you put in the spot is like, okay, I mean, some of the nice things have been really just opportunities people are giving to me, right? Like professionally, I gravitate to that, right? In this context where I'm thinking about like mentors come to mind, right? People who have given me opportunity professionally to take a leadership position in a project that I never would have otherwise had because they trusted me. And, you know, I'd say that, but yeah, but I'm trying to think of something that's a bit more like down to earth. <laughs> Those are all fair <laughs> answers, by the way. I, I don't no. know. If, yeah, they're yeah. all fair answers because we've had the gamut. We've had, I mean, yeah, well, sometimes people go to a whole different place with the answer. So, it, but they're all fair. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, what I found is when, and this will say broadly, in my, in my experience, like the things that have really, I found have been transformative for me and have valued and I have looking back maybe didn't, sometimes didn't even really get at the time like there's the kind of day-to-day really incredibly nice things and kindnesses like holding a door which you know, things like that they're very they exist in that spectrum but I think for me things have been when people have just for whatever reason trusted me to take something on that there was no evidence that I would have been qualified to do it and essentially like putting a position where I could <laughs> totally fail and let me run with it, right? Like, I think that that, looking back, I don't know if that counts as nice or not, but it is deeply, deeply appreciated. And sometimes I didn't even realize, in many cases, I didn't realize at the time that the kind of the gift that was being given to me then. And I think that that's, I'm saying that because I just encourage everyone to, I try to do that as well, because I found looking back, like those are the moments that kind of change the course of my life in a, in a deep, kind of deep way. And that exists both professionally and also in very non-professional personal ways. So I think that it's, trust me, when people, when folks, when people have trusted me to do things for reasons I don't know, or I truly did not think I was capable of doing it. There was no evidence to suggest me that I could. That That's could, great. Yeah, I that, think it. All right. It's a little, I'm being vague because I don't want to, you know, some of these the stories are a little bit, but anyway, I'll leave it at that. 
Yeah, no, I I, I appreciate I, <laughs> that no, was I, a, that was a total flub, but also I appreciate you throwing a, a curveball at me like that too. I mean, so. I but I think that ability for those people in your life to give you that shot when you know, oftentimes, especially in this industry, I think you know those shots really do matter because a lot of people are you know you can think about it in this career sometimes ambition can be squashed pretty easily or quickly yeah. because of the risks involved in the industry itself. But I think that recognition of people's capacity to learn quickly or, or whatnot is important. And the ability to be, to give those opportunities is critical. And that's something we stand behind really deeply here. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's. No, I mean, it's like, it's a core thing. It's actually so core to, to the architecture profession, right? Because so for so much of what we do, there is actually a right way to do it. And that doesn't mean it's the only way, but there's so many, there's many ways, in so many cases, there's, there's a right way of doing, whether it's a detail or, you know, uh, or, the, or the way you're going to approach a project or a fee schedule. There, there are so many right ways that have been learned through time more than like hard experience. And I think one of the, so it's really hard if you're someone who knows the right way and someone comes to the table naively in many cases with like a totally out of left field idea. I think it takes an incredible amount. It's, there's nothing intuitive about allowing that crazy idea to have any space to grow, right? In fact, everything's pointing towards not doing that. And most of the examples... Well, the history will show in, in practice that like you mostly shouldn't do that, right? You shouldn't try the details. You know it's going to leak, and that's why I have an enormous amount of respect for the people who have the experience and who know the right way to actually sometimes make a deliberate choice to allow that kind of wrong hmm. idea to have some breath in the service of perhaps ultimately discovering something that was totally unexpected. And I think that that's maybe it's bringing back to what I was talking about originally, like in the very beginning, like that's I think in practices that can do that really interest me. Because it's so hard, right? Because practices are organisms too. Like people, like they grow, they get, and they, as they get older, they get more conservative. And it's it's harder and harder to let, to do things the wrong way because you know, because you know what can happen and you know the right way. But I think that it's essential in staying fresh and really discovering new things to, to build that, somehow retain that muscle memory or build it, right? Absolutely. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for your time and everyone here that joined us today. I'll wrap up by just kind of giving a plug for Monograph, the team that we're a part of uh, here, uh, Chris and I, and then we can kind of go on our merry way. So at Monograph, we're building the future of practice operations for architects and other design professionals. We make it very easy for you and your team to track those KPIs we're mentioning, right? Those data points that are super important for you to make decisions. So whether that's tracking time and seeing how that relates to budgets, resourcing with team members and their own time, or even things like forecasting and be able to anticipate potential shortcomings in a project schedule. All of that's included when it comes to Monograph. So in a sense, your entire team gets much more visibility and they don't have to operate in the dark. So everyone from principals to marketers to BD, everyone can kind of uh, use Monograph to be able to see and visualize when projects need to be coming into the firm and all that. So if you sign up today, you get a 10-day free trial. I highly encourage you to do so. And if you have any questions, you can reach out to myself or Chris. Uh, at Monog George or Chris at monograph.com. And uh, Jacob, thank you so much for doing this. This has been awesome. Thanks, George. Thanks for the, the opportunity. Great yeah, to talk. Really, really appreciate it. Right. Thanks, thank everyone. you, Jacob. Thanks, Chris. Cheers. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-size architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.